0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation or circumstances. Today, we're going to do another version of one of our most popular episodes, What Top Fund Managers Are Holding?, We'll take a look at how our original trio are going and talk about a few new fundies and what we think of their largest bets.
1: So I know this is an episode that you get really excited about because yeah, you love funds. I do. And we always, we've stopped, but originally when lockdown started, we started talking about lockdown and sort of updates on how miserable it was.
0: Yeah. I think people just assume it's miserable yeah.
1: now, So, but, <laughs> but now, now there's a little bit, at least in New South Wales, a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Mm-hmm. We're getting close to 70%. Mm-hmm.
0: And we've had picnics.
1: And and picnics, yeah. So last weekend was the big – this is what I was going to ask you about. Last yeah. weekend was the big picnic weekend, and you went on a couple picnics.
0: I did. You I know, went on three picnics. Yeah, you know I what, what I did? I was all picnicked out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I helped Julia, our friend, move.
0: That does not sound like a picnic. No,
1: no. And I, I'm a little bit worried. So the good thing is that she lives very close to me now, mm-hmm. which I like because she's a good friend of mine, ours. The problem was that, you know, IKEA yeah. seems like a great concept. and then. <laughs> You build something, which (laughs) makes it seem like less of a good concept. But then when you move, there are some concerns.
0: Yeah. Are you just not good at flat packs? Is this where it's going?
1: I'm not good. I don't know what that means. Okay.
0: (laughs) All right. Probably not then.
1: Okay. Her furniture was in a van. Like, it was ready. She put it in a van and carried it in, but it was in pieces. And I had to, like, help her put it together. Now, she's much more handy than I am. But still, (laughs) like, I would hold things while she hammered stuff or screwed stuff in. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty worried that she is going to hurt herself when her bed collapses. It did not look sturdy. Yeah, okay. At all.
0: So you've only purchased furniture that's just come whole as is.
1: No, I've I've purchased stuff that was put together. I've never moved it. Okay. <laughs> the moving stuff is difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Jeez. Well, Shawnee is looking at me with utter disdain, which is <laughs> not the first time. But let's get back to the episode. So <laughs> In the first time, the first time we did this, we yeah. covered three different funds. Mm-hmm. So we covered Hyperion's Australian Growth Companies Fund, Arc Innovations ETF, run by Kathy Woods, and Magellan's Global Fund with Hamish Douglas, who Shawnee followed around a conference once, <laughs> like a little puppy. Following it's it's going to happen around. again in
0: February. So. I know,
1: I know, exactly. <laughs> Just
0: try and stop me.
1: Exactly. I think. I think Hamish's bodyguards are the ones yeah, that stop yeah. you.
0: He's going to refuse to come to the conference this year after hearing this. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think he. I, I think he definitely
0: listens to Investing Compass. Yeah. Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> Sunday morning at six
1: a.m. He's waiting for Investing Compass yeah. to come out so he can figure out what he's going to invest in the next exactly. week. Exactly. All right. So why don't we go back and look at first thing? We'll look at those three different funds that. We covered, and we can start with the market, right? So that will provide a little bit of context. So mm-hmm. we did that around five months ago. So let's see what's happened. So we released that episode on the first of April, and if we go to the thirty-first of August, we've seen that Vanguard MSCI Index index of international shares, um, which is just a good global market index, is up fifteen and a quarter percent. So the NASDAQ composite is up 13.24%. So that's US tech-focused. But that's important when we look at Cathie Woods and ARK Innovation. And if we look at the Allwards, closer to home, the top 500 stocks by market cap in Australia, it's gone up 10.59%.
0: So we've seen big lifts this year, continuing the run we've seen. One thing to remember, though, is that no investment should be judged on such a short time period of Five months, so we'll see how they've performed. But we'd what we'd really like to see is if their conviction has shifted since April, and whether they've made any major changes in their portfolio since then.
1: I think it will be particularly interesting to see what Hamish has done. So he's been pretty vocal about his uncertainty with the market, and he's demonstrated this with pretty large cash position and some conservative positions across the fund that he runs. And he has been plagued with underperformance. And the global fund has underperformed the benchmark on a five-year, three-year, one-year, six-month, and three-month basis. And as one of the biggest funds with assets under management in Australia, this has been a bit of a punch to the gut for many investors, especially over the last year, where it underperformed the market by over 17%. So the question is, has this shaken Hamish? Has he doubted the conviction he has in his strategy?
0: So it seems like he has not shaken from his position. His largest holding is still in Microsoft at 7.8%, followed by Facebook, Alphabet, Starbucks, Netflix, and Alibaba. This was the same lineup we listed in April and shows that Hamish is staying true to his long-term investing philosophy, and his conviction is still strong on the bets that he made.
1: And what's interesting about this is that Hamish has had a long love affair with Microsoft. So he first purchased it in 2013. Then the youngest holding we see in his top 10 is Netflix which was acquired in 2020. But the rest of the top 10 varied between 2016 and 2019. So Hamish has a pretty strong belief that his bets will pay off in the long term. And we see this in the reported turnover, meaning how much of the fund does Hamish sell off each year? He's sitting at around a 24% rate. Keep this in mind as we talk about our next fund manager, so Kathy Woods. So we move on, we look at the ARK Innovation ETF. Back in April, Kathy had a big bet on Tesla. And yes, it is still in the top three with 10.4% of the fund invested in the electric vehicle manufacturer.
0: And that turnover rate for her is at 80%, so really, really high. Funnily enough, though, Kathy first bought Tesla in her portfolio in 2014. So it has been one of her longest held bets, and she's still keeping the faith. When we look at the rest of her top holdings, the majority were acquired in 2020 or 2021, and that's pretty illustrative of that short-term holding pattern that the turnover rate indicates. When we have looked at performance, it's jumped up and down since April. But in terms of performance, it really hasn't moved overall. Tesla's been on the up since then, though, by about 11%. Lots of ups and downs in between, though, like the fund. And as we mentioned at the beginning, the NASDAQ Composite is up 13.24% in comparison. Again, short-term performance isn't going to indicate much to us, but we can see from this that Kathy's bet on Tesla is still in place.
1: And our last check-in: so Hyperion's Australian Growth Companies Fund. We looked at this fund in April. Zero was the top; it was at the top spot of the portfolio with about eleven percent invested in the software stock. As of July thirty-first, it had been knocked off its perch by Afterpay. So Afterpay makes up eleven point four four percent of the Australian Growth Companies Fund now and zero is still second, still at around 11%. So the team in Hyperion have held their conviction with zero and their investment in Afterpay has paid off with them first acquiring the stock in June 2020.
0: And although they've received a stellar return from Afterpay, they've trailed the index year to date, but they've outperformed over the long term, 3, 5 and 10 years. But more importantly, they're sticking with their conviction. So should we move to our new fundies?
1: I think we should, Shanika. So okay. <laughs> we thought instead of picking the first big names that came to mind, we picked the names that are most likely to be in your portfolio. So we had to look through a Morningstar data and the active funds with the largest funds under management. So Majone Global sat at the top, which of course we've covered, followed by three passive Vanguard funds. So our next three managers for this episode are Orbis Global Equity Fund, Platinum International, and T. Rowe Price Global Equity. These are a few funds that – and there are a few funds that sit between those. So there's Ardia Real Outcome Fund, ANZ V2 Plus, and PIMCO Global Bond Fund. But their largest holdings are government bonds and cash, which, of course, are not very sexy.
0: No, and I think what's really interesting here is that we've obviously got a bit of a home bias here in Australia – We tend to stick with domestic markets for direct equities, and of course, home bias is the tendency to stick with what feels comfortable. It means personal experiences and allegiances play an outsized role in the decisions that we make. Home bias is why people gravitate to the same brands at the store, why people bet more on their favorite sports teams, and why people invest in local companies. But when we're looking at the largest funds in Australia, we're seeing a lot of international funds and bond funds. And a disclaimer about these funds, we haven't distinguished between retail and wholesale investors. So the funds under management covers retail, so everyday investors like you and me, wholesale and institutional clients, so super funds, insurance companies, and the likes. So ultimately, these funds might have a few big institutional investors that have flowed their funds into the funds, both directly or indirectly, but individual investors will have exposure to these funds in some way or another.
1: And we've spoken about where active managers tend to do well. And they're in broader markets that aren't as well-researched, where they have a larger playing field to find undiscovered or little-known opportunities. So we can hypothesize that Australian investors are getting international exposure, or when they're getting international exposure, they're choosing to leave it to the professionals.
0: So we'll approach this episode in the same way as the last. We'll see where these big funds have made major bets and what our equity analysts think of them.
1: Okay. So why don't we start with the Orbis Global Equity Fund. Mm -hmm. And our analysts give this fund a bronze medalist rating. And if we go to Orbis's website, this fund is described as contrarian, a contrarian long-term fund that aims for returns that are higher than global stock markets, and this philosophy has been unchanged for 30 years. They say that the portfolio may be concentrated and considerably different from the benchmark, and it provides better diversity across sectors, geographies, and companies than domestic equities alone.
0: So why is it so important for Orbis to call that out? So in our first episode, we spoke about closet indexing, which plagues active managers. And closet indexing is when active funds start to look a lot like the index. We have to remember that fund managers in most cases have their remuneration tied to their performance. Fund managers can be seen as superstars by some, but at the end of the day, they are a person doing a job and their remuneration is tied to how they perform relative to an index. Underperformance is tied to outflows in funds, and because fund managers collect a management fee that is a percentage of the funds under management, they want to ensure that they're maintaining those fund levels. This means that managers might not want to take positions that deviate too far from the index or their peers, just in case it causes a deviation that they're punished for.
1: So when they say that they are considerably different from their benchmark, they are saying that they are not closet indexers, and they're not riding on the coattails of the benchmark. They're working hard for the fee that they're charging. So Why don't we check and see if their claim stacks up?
0: We love to cross-check claims, mate. so (laughs) we can cross-check this claim using something called active share. And what active share is, is a similarity measure of the equity holdings of a fund and its benchmark. So an active share score of zero indicates that the equity portion of the fund and its benchmark are the same equities in the same proportions. An active share score of 100 indicates that the equity portion of the fund and its benchmark have no common holdings. So Orbis have stayed true to what's on the label they have an active share score of 92.42. So they've deviated significantly from the benchmark and put conviction in their team and process to outperform.
1: Yeah. So that should make their top holdings even more interesting. And in this case, it is. So it's something called net ease and ADR. So that's an American depository receipt, which just means it trades in New York. And this makes up 6% of their portfolio. And they first bought this in 2008. So a long-term buy and hold.
0: And NetEase is the first stock in this series that isn't really a household name in Australia, at least. So what do they do, Mark?
1: Yeah, so NetEase has a dual listing in Hong Kong and then, as I said, in the U.S. on the NASDAQ, but they're classified as a telecom company and they are a Chinese internet provider. So the services they provide are varied, but their online services include content, community, communications, and commerce, the four Cs. <laughs> um, they develop and maintain online PC mobile games, advertising services, email services, and e-commerce platforms in China.
0: Okay, so we don't hear the company's name very often around these parts. But to add some context, they've created the Chinese versions of games like World of Warcraft and according to the wall street journal they also own pig farms which and i quote bring home the bacon for net ease there was that, did, the,
1: did the wall street journal say that or did they you did. come up with that no
0: that was the wall street journal okay do you know that china not that clever mate <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i'm aware i'm aware but <laughs> okay. do you know that uh, do you know that china has a strategic pork reserve I didn't. Yeah. So the average person in China, and Mm -hmm. I did look up this fact. Okay. So I I don't just know this, but the average person (laughs) in China consumes four times the amount of pork as the average American. Mm -hmm. And so they keep this supply of pigs and this strategic pork reserve, and then they release them if prices get too high.
0: Yeah. I guess you got to give the people what they want.
1: Yeah. And I guess in this case, what they want is pork.
0: Yeah. Same. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
1: Exactly. All right. So we talked a little bit about pig farms, but I don't think that that's their biggest part of their business. So let's talk about what Orbis might see in NetEase. So they say that the core business is strong, which is good, and NetEase has promising new ventures that are currently loss-making, but they believe will offer substantial long-term potential upside. So on their website, they give two examples. So UDAO and NetEase Cloud Music. So UDAO operates a variety of popular learning apps, such as the most widely used dictionary and translation app in China, and a leading K-9 through online education business. And there is a large after-school education market in China, and so they think that this offers growth potential and should be a tailwind for the company.
0: Yeah, and although it's been a strong performance since they have acquired it, the company has especially excelled in the last couple of years in a quarantine world because of their online entertainment and core gaming business, and that accounts for 80% of revenues. It's highly cash-generative, and they've invested heavily in R&D to retain its competitive advantage, which we, of course, love here at Morningstar. So because it has performed really well in the last couple of years, it has been the largest contributor to the fund's relative performance since the start of the year.
1: Yeah. So sounds pretty good. But why don't we look at what our analysts have to say about it? And Mm -hmm. we're actually pretty much in line with Orbus. We think they're undervalued by about 30%. So we've got their fair, fair value at $139. And they were trading at $97 at the time we recorded this podcast. So our Analyst Evan Sue, who sits in our US equity research team, believes that when we look at the future prospects of NetEase, legacy games continue will continue to generate strong revenue. And the company is developing new games on these existing intellectual platforms or IPs, which is promising. They've also been successful with recent international expansion. So they've moved into the Japanese gaming market and have good results so far. And they're incubating younger IPs which we also think are promising. And we do actually think that Orbis is on the right track with NetEase's competitive advantage in the market. We've assigned NetEase a narrow moat rating based on intangible assets. And these intangible assets are derived from intellectual property based on its popular PC and mobile games that have been around for over a decade. So we think it has a really strong capability of creating and operating gaming. And our analyst predicts that NetEase's return on invested capital will be well above its weighted average cost of capital which, of course, is what you get with a moat, and even if NetEase keeps investing in these loss-making companies. Now, our analyst did not say anything about the pig farms.
0: No, I don't think he did.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm most interested in. Yeah,
0: I want to know a little bit more about that too. So overall, we think that NetEase is undervalued, but we do have a few concerns. The first is that popularity is a fickle friend. Unpopular releases of new games could lead to disappointment of investors, and NetEase is particularly susceptible to this in China, as the market is quite mature, and this is where they get the majority of their gross profit. We're also a little concerned about geopolitical tensions. As a Chinese-based company, they're looking to expand internationally. There might be hurdles and difficulty in fulfilling an expansion plan.
1: Really, shiny popularity is a fickle friend? <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: You don't like that phrase?
1: I mean, uh, the phrase is fine. Okay. <laughs> a little bit odd. Why don't we move on to okay. our next fund? See yeah, what, let's do it. See what you have to say <laughs> okay. about that. Shawnee has had half a beer, by the way, okay. during the recording, <laughs> which may which may have caused her to say popularity. is a
0: fickle friend. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, why don't we look at Platinum International. So Sounds good. this, of course, is a crowd favorite with retail <laughs> investors, and we give it a bronze rating at Morningstar. So it also comes as an ETF with the ticker symbol PIXX. And the fund primarily invests in listed securities and has a really wide mandate. So ideally, it consists of 70 to 140 securities that Platinum believes to be undervalued. But they're also able to hold cash. They can't find securities that are attractive. So in other words, many funds have asset ranges that they have to stick to. So a fund might have a 30 to 50% Aussie equity asset allocation, and they must abide by this. But if they don't find anything attractive, they still have to fill at least 30% of their portfolio with Aussie equities. Platinum are calling out that they don't have this issue. They have a permissible range for cash between 0% and 100%. And they're able to hold cash if they don't think it's worth dipping their toes into the market. So they do typically hold at least 50% net equity exposure, though. And they can also short securities that they consider overvalued. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity
0: best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks.
1: A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a Shareside investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. and Take advantage of ShareSite's investment performance and tax reporting. That has been built specifically for the needs of self directed investors. If you love premium after your four week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today.
0: So, Platinum has 146 holdings, and their top holding makes up a smaller percentage of the fund than the other funds that we've looked at as part of this series. Their top holding is Glencore, first purchased in the portfolio in July 2017 and at a current portfolio weight of 3.29%. Glencore is a commodity trading and mining company that's listed on the London Stock Exchange. It might have something to do with the size of the holding, but Platinum haven't explicitly called out why they find Glencore attractive, but we do have a brief statement from their website, from Andrew Clifford, who runs the International Fund, and it's about his general economic outlook. He believes that the global economy is strong, coming out of the 2020 recession, and that generally, now is a good time to own shares. He goes on to say that there are many companies that they hold across their portfolios that they expect will likely benefit from the recovery and are still trading at reasonable valuations. He does speak a little bit about risk, though, including persistent high levels of inflation and the impact of interest rates, which investors need to be mindful and wary of, especially if they're investing in growth stocks that are overheated and trading at extremely high valuations. So that gives us some insight into how the portfolio is positioned and the thinking behind the positions. So let's move on and see what Morningstar thinks about Glencore, Plat- Platinum's largest holding.
1: Yeah, well, we think Glencore is undervalued. And so obviously we think Platinum's on the right track there. So it's currently trading for around £329, and our fair value sits at £370. And incidentally, I am currently weighing in at around 329 pounds, <laughs> thanks to lockdown. But let's go so the through- the
0: Fitfin's trying to fix that. You the the
1: Fitfin is trying to fix that. He has his work cut out for him. <laughs> so why don't we go through the bull and bear case for Glencore. So the bull case is that Glencore ranks among the most diversified of the large global miners. And they've got a global spanning network of traders and logistics- And they have enough assets to generate significant economies of scale. Because of their expansive networks and mining operations, they have an ability to arbitrage price discrepancies that come from time, geography, and product differences. Glencore is also a lot more diversified than its competitors. It has greater exposure than other miners to late-cycle commodities such as nickel, cobalt, and copper.
0: Okay, so the bear case. The major bear case is pretty obvious here. Glencore's mining portfolios overweight higher-risk countries, and there's limited legal safeguards for foreign investors. And Director of Equities in Australia, Matt Hodge, who covers this stock, goes on to say that this reliance on China will have impacts on profits. China is the world's largest consumer of copper and coal and has accounted for nearly all global demand growth in the past two years. He predicts a weaker Chinese demand growth, and that will likely add pressure to copper and coal prices. And Glencore, as well as Glencore's competition, will have profits far harder to come by.
1: So those are the bull and bear cases. And although we do think Glencore is undervalued, we've assigned it a high uncertainty rating for the fair value, and that's accounting for some financial leverage, commodity price risk, and operating leverage. And we also don't assign it a moat. We just don't have enough confidence in Glencore being able to maintain a sustainable competitive advantage. All right. Last fund. We've mm-hmm. almost made it. So our last fund, if you guys remember, was T. Rowe Price Global Equity. And Shawnee, you've said multiple times that you are invested in this fund. So <laughs> I, I think it's your job to give the introduction.
0: All right, Mark. So let's start with the good news about T. Rowe Price Global Equity. Our manager research team assigns it a gold medalist rating. Chris Franz, our analyst who covers this fund, to put it quite simply in the heading for his analyst note, top of the class. T. Rowe Price states on their website that this fund is high conviction, truly global equity portfolio seeking to invest in companies with above average and sustainable growth characteristics. It currently has 214 holdings sitting between mid and large cap, and its largest holding is Amazon at 2.98%, which they first bought in 2012. So again, we don't have any specific comments from T. Rowe Price about their Amazon holding, but we do have insights into their outlook for the market and how they've positioned their portfolio to suit.
1: Over the last few quarters, the team at T-Row have kept their portfolios mostly sector neutral. They point to us being in a challenging environment where markets are debating the timing of the end of the pandemic and what the world will look like in the next 6 to 12 months, and this is creating a lot of complexity for investors. So what they've tried to do with their portfolios is to ensure that they keep a diverse range of holdings across sectors and regions to account for the unknown. They're only investing in companies that they believe are truly innovative and can produce solid growth over a pretty short time frame, so two or three years. And that's what they think with the largest holding in their portfolio. So they think Amazon fits this bill.
0: So what does Morningstar think about Amazon? We think that Amazon is undervalued. Our fair value for the stock sits at $4,200, and it's currently sitting at $3,463. We think that Amazon has a bright outlook because it's a clear leader in e-commerce and enjoys unrivaled scale to continue to invest in growth opportunities, and drive the best customer experience. They also generate revenue from high-margin advertising in AWS, which are both growing faster than the corporate average, and this should boost profitability over the next few years. They've also been pretty successful at retention, and they've achieved this through Prime memberships. Prime members stick around for longer, spend more, and are loyal. It reinforces a network effect and brings in recurring high-margin revenue. But as we all know, there's always risks and uncertainty for all businesses. So what are we concerned about, Mark?
1: Yeah. So our analysts have a couple areas that they're concerned about. So they look at regulatory concerns, and they say they're rising for large technology firms. And they're talking about expanding internationally for Amazon. So they're going to encounter markets that have tighter regulatory and compliance controls, and they may struggle with that. There's also new investments that Amazon has made. And this is across fulfillment, delivery, and of course, AWS. So this has dampened free cash flow growth. And this has actually been rooted in issues with international logistics networks. Amazon's success in markets other than the U.S. have not come easy. The logistic networks just haven't been built to support Amazon's business model. But we still maintain that Amazon is undervalued and that it has a sustainable competitive advantage. We assign a wide moat rating to Amazon based on network effects, cost advantages, intangible assets, and switching costs.
0: Okay, so that wraps up our second episode on what top fund managers are holding. If we're basing our assessments purely on whether we think the stock is trading for less than it's worth, we're pretty in line with our three managers on their top holdings. I think for the next one, we should do a listener request and pick out the most popular funds that people suggest. We'd also love to call out that you can find all the resources mentioned in our podcast in the link in our episode notes. It was a piece of feedback that we receive and we agree that it's so much easier when everything is in the one place. We'll have the analyst reports for the funds and equities mentioned up on that page for premium members. But of course, you can always take out a free four-week trial.
1: All right. So we actually went through six funds if you count the first three. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. A revision. Exactly, exactly. All right. (laughs) Well, thank you guys very much for joining. A couple reminders. Number one, leave a comment and a rating. Send an email to my email address, which is in the episode notes, and we will give you a free online ticket to our conference coming up in February. And we will give you a discounted ticket to attending in-person in Sydney where you can meet us. So thank you for that. Please follow us on Instagram, at Morningstar Investor AU, and we will be back soon with a new episode. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited, without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.